It was a tale of two stories, a tale of two people. I was in the office of my communications professor in college. He was winsome, funny, and loved by all of his students. As I sat down with him as a new believer, I shared the gospel with him. He scoffed at the idea of submitting his life to Jesus. He called it a bunch of fairy tales. I left his office really discouraged. And I left there to go to the home of my college pastor, who was about to go out on a date with his wife, and I had volunteered to babysit his children. And so as I was there making macaroni and cheese for his two children, I began sharing the gospel with the two of them, Jake and Haley. Haley was seven years old at the time. And as I'm walking them through the gospel, Haley is glued to every word. And as she hears the gospel and as she is hearing about Jesus and who he is and what he has come to do, the Lord is working on her heart. Her eyes are aglow and transfixed on the good news of Jesus. A few weeks later, she would bow her heart and give her life to Jesus. Two different people, two different responses to the same gospel. One scoffed and rejected. The other rejoiced and received. One was willing to humble themselves and to trust in Jesus. And that is what we see Jesus driving us to do in Mark chapter 9. Let me show you. Grab your Bible and turn with me to Mark chapter 9. And as you're turning there, I do want to invite the kids who are watching at home and kids even here in this room that as you listen to the sermon, as you hear the story of Jesus, just draw out pictures. I love getting pictures from you kids. In fact, I got a couple of them that were handed to me. This one right here, my daughter made, in which we see Jesus up there on the cross, up on Calvary. And on the back, she wrote, I love you, God, to dad uh, from Eliane, God is the king. And I was like, amen. Good job, Ellie girl. I, I, I love that one right there. And then these two, I got in the mail this week. And I thought they were just, just tremendous. Uh, so this one comes from Ruth Ann Vogel. And when she drew a picture of the sermon from last week, it was just so well done. I love what you did there, Ruth Ann. And then her sister also drew me one that was just precious. And I love getting these pictures from all the different kids. This is from Amelia, in which we see Jesus walking on water in the storm and Jesus being transfigured. And it's just an amazing uh, picture here. I love this right here where the cloud comes in. It says, listen. I love it. Way to go, sweet girl. That's exactly what the Father said to uh, the disciples up on that mountain at Transfiguration. Love these. Keep sending them in. I love hearing from you. And parents, as kids are in the room with us, I love it. They may squirm. They may make noises. And I am perfectly content with it. A couple of weeks ago, right here at the front right at the altar, there was a brother and a brother, ages four and six, who were wrestling each other. And I wanted to call a timeout and be like, y'all, can we just watch this for a minute? It was fantastic. I was cutting up, but I thought, no, I'm not going to put the mom in that position. But I just want you to know, I'm, I'm perfectly content with any and all kids having a great time here as we gather around the word. 
Also, I want to let you know that coming up, starting September the 1st, we're going to be taking a break from our study in the book of Mark, and we're going to start a sermon series called Sanity. We're going to take some time as a faith family to walk through the book of Proverbs. When it seems like the world around us has lost its ever-loving mind, as it seems that common sense is a superpower, I want us to take time as a faith family to grow in wisdom. So as in our study of sanity throughout the, uh, the month of September, for every day of the month of September, we are going to read a chapter of Proverbs together as a faith family. So starting September 1st, we're going to read Proverbs chapter 1. On September 2nd, we're going to read Proverbs chapter 2, and so on. We'll go all the way through to Proverbs 31, which will take place on October the 1st. Now each week, we as a faith family are going to be memorizing one proverb, one Bible verse per week together. And then in our faith gatherings, we're going to quote the scripture together. We're developing some small group curriculum for adult life groups to go through this study. I'm going to be preaching through Proverbs through the month of September. And I think it'd be just a sweet time for us as a faith family for us to look forward to do together. So that's going to be coming this September. And I'm looking forward to celebrating that with you as a faith family. We as a faith family, I've also been walking through the gospel of Mark. We have been seeing Jesus who is on the move. It's a fast-paced, hard-hitting book where we see Jesus uh, is on the move in the hearts and lives of people. Mark gives more attention to the actions of Jesus and less to the teachings of Jesus. But as we're going to see here in just a moment, Jesus does take some time to teach his disciples. As we have seen in Mark chapter 9, where Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up on the Mount of Transfiguration. I think it's Mount Hermon, but we don't know exactly where he was, where Jesus is transfigured. His body takes on a temporary glorified body in which he shines like the sun. We then see Jesus and the three disciples come down the mountain, as we saw last week, in which they come across the nine disciples and how they are struggling to cast a demon out of a little boy. After all of that takes place, we get to Mark chapter 9, verse 30, where the scripture says this. Then they left that place and made their way through Galilee, but he did not want anyone to know it. For he was teaching his disciples and telling them, the son of man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him. And after he is killed, he will rise three days later. But they did not understand this statement and they were afraid to ask him. They came to Capernaum when he was in the house and he asked them, what were you arguing about on the way? But they were silent because on the way they had been arguing with one another about who was the greatest. Sitting down, he called the twelve and said to them, If anyone wants to be first, he must be last and servant of all. He took a child and had him stand among them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever welcomes one little child such as this in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but him who sent me." As Jesus is making his final journey south toward Jerusalem, he's preparing his disciples for his upcoming death. But this, I want you to notice in the text where Jesus points his disciples. I want you to see first that Jesus points to the true gospel. He points to the true gospel. He has descended Mount Hermon with the three disciples. The four of them joined the other nine, and he finds those nine disciples in a pickle. 
A father has brought his demon-possessed son and the nine disciples who are not up on the mountain, they're unable to cast out the demon. And then like a scene from the West Side Story, a pharisaical group of scribes show up and begin to argue with the disciples. And in the midst of the conflict between the two groups, Jesus arrives. He redeems the moment. He rebukes and corrects the scribes and the disciples. And then he drew out the faith of the father and cast the demon out of the boy. So verse 30. They left that place and made their way through Galilee. Now, Galilee is the northern region of Israel in which Jesus has served the majority of his ministry. Now, remember, Jesus spent the majority of his time here around the Sea of Galilee, going from town to town. Now, he would take periodic trips down to Jerusalem for feasts and for festivals, but he focused primarily up near the Sea of Galilee. Now, from a geographical perspective, Mark writes his gospel that after Jesus' baptism in chapter 1, the first nine chapters are in the north. And as we're going to see in a couple of weeks, when in chapter 10, when he goes south, that's where chapters 10 through 16 takes place. So Mark's gospel is divided geographically, chapters 1 through 9 in the north, chapters 10 through 16 in the south. And as he's making his way through the region, verse 30, he didn't want anyone to know it. The time for the large crowds has passed. He's going in secret. They're walking through the region because Jesus knows what is ahead. In Luke chapter nine, verse 51, it says that Jesus had set his face like flint to go to Jerusalem. He was focused on the cross. He knew what was in front of him. And as they're making their way there, Jesus is teaching his disciples. He is preparing them for what is to come. Verse 31, for he was teaching his disciples and telling them, the son of man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him. And after he is killed, he will rise three days later. You see the cross did not catch Jesus off guard. It was the plan of God from the very beginning. Back in Genesis chapter 3, when sin first entered into the world through our first parents, God made a promise in chapter 3, verse 15. It's called the Proto-Evangelon. It's the first gospel message in which God tells the serpent that the seed of the woman is going to come forth. You're going to strike his heel. He's going to crush your head. We see God already going on record saying, I've got a plan in motion. Well, at the cross, we see where the serpent, Satan, struck the heel of Jesus. And then on the third day, Jesus crushes his head. You see, we already see in motion God's plan of sending his son to the cross. Kind of like in Psalm 22 where David writes that there's a coming Messiah who would be pierced in his hands and in his feet. Now that is 800 years before crucifixion was ever invented. Who in the world could have come up with that? God. God knew his plan. He was going to send forth his son to go to the cross. And here Jesus is telling his disciples, this is what I'm about to go do. In fact, when Peter stands up at Pentecost and he's preaching to the Jews in Jerusalem, he says that Jesus was delivered up according to God's determined plan and foreknowledge. You see, Jesus knew what was ahead of him. 
And for now, the second time in Mark's gospel, he's telling the disciples, y'all, this is what's coming. He says, verse 31, the son of man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. Question, who is going to betray Jesus? Judas Iscariot. King David wrote of a future Benedict Arnold of the Messiah back in Psalm 41, verse 9, where it says, even my close friend whom I trusted, he who shared my bread has lifted up his heel against me. You see, Judas Iscariot's turning against Jesus was prophesied hundreds of years earlier. In fact, in Zechariah, he tells us that he would be betrayed, Jesus would be betrayed, the Messiah would be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. Very specific. Not 20 bucks, but 30 pieces of silver. A specific amount. And Jesus knew it. He knew the whole time what was in the heart of Judas Iscariot. He knew he would be betrayed, and yet Jesus loved him anyways. I know we have lots of entrepreneurs in our church. Could you imagine launching your business with the understanding that you're going to hire someone who's going to sabotage your company? None of us would do that. Or let's say that you're a coach and you're selecting your team, trying to figure out who you want to be on your ball club, and you select someone intentionally who's going to be rooting against you and helping the other team win. None of us would do that. But that's what Jesus does. He loves Judas Iscariot. He invites him into his 12. And we see where the very plan of God was in motion, in which he knew who would betray him, and yet he loved him anyways. Jesus washed his feet. He fed him. He treated him the same love and respect of the other 11 disciples. In fact, when Jesus told the disciples that one of them was going to betray them, all of them said, surely not I. They didn't know who it was going to be. Are you kidding, Jesus? Who of us? They didn't even think about Judas Iscariot. There was no way they couldn't imagine him being the one. But you know, ultimately, it wasn't Judas who handed Jesus over, but it was God. God is the one who handed Jesus over to death. You see, God loves you so much that Romans 8, 32, he did not even spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. And Jesus so trusted his father that he joyfully submitted to the sovereign plan of God so that even when he would be rejected and betrayed by one of his disciples, he persevered all the way to the cross. Jesus knew the entire time who was going to betray him, and yet Jesus still loved him, and he knew what was in front of him. He knew what was coming, verse 31. He knew that there was flogging and trials, suffering, mocking, belittling, betrayal, and ultimately a crucifixion, and yet Jesus did it anyways. Why? Because he loves you. Jesus loves you so much that he willingly went to the cross and he gave his life so that through faith in him, you can be forgiven. 
You can be redeemed and bought back. You can be brought into a right relationship with God through him. Jesus knew what was ahead of him and he did not flinch. He was focused. He wanted to fulfill the will of the Father and to rescue people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation so that all peoples might know him. This is your Savior whom you love. This is your Savior whom you follow. The one who was focused and tunnel visioned and was able to complete the task that was in front of him. You see, when it came to the cross, Jesus knew and followed through out of love for you. You like my poetry? He knew he would suffer and die. But you know the best news of all? He didn't stay dead. Verse 31, he rose again on the third day. He secured eternal life for all who believe the gospel. Question is, do you believe? Have you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ? If you have not believed the gospel, then today turn from your sin and trust in him. Believe the gospel and you will be rescued. This is what Jesus came to do. So that all of us have all gone astray, each of us to his own way. But the the, the iniquity of us all was laid upon Jesus at the cross. And here we see Jesus pointing his disciples and he's pointing you to the true gospel. Well, at this point, the disciples don't fully understand what he means. Verse 32, they were afraid to ask him. They were confused. You see, the Messiah, he's supposed to be this great military leader. You see, we're looking for a a Messiah who will actually take Rome down. We're not looking for some weak Messiah. We want someone who will kick him in the teeth. We want someone who's going to give us victory over our enemies. What they didn't understand was that the path to victory was through the cross and the empty tomb. This is the plan of God to send forth his son to secure victory. And indeed, you do have victory over your greatest enemy. Death because of Christ. You know, the beauty of the gospel is that death does not have the final word. I hate funerals. But they don't have the last word. Because Christ is risen. We have confidence and joy. We have Jesus. Don't underestimate the significance of us gathering together and singing together and praying together and hearing the word together. This has eternal significance. There's nothing more important than this gospel because it has everything to do not only with where you're gonna be in five years, but in five billion years. And Jesus loves you so much that he went all the way to the cross and he rose again, offering you eternal life. Today, run from your sin and run to the Savior. Believe in Christ and you will be rescued. We see Jesus, he is pointing us to the true gospel. 
But secondly, what I want you to see here in the text is that Jesus is pointing to true greatness. Here in the text, Jesus heads to his Galilean ministry headquarters of Capernaum. He's got one last stay there, probably staying at Peter's house. He asks his disciples a question, verse 33. What were you arguing about on the way here? Jesus, the master teacher, loved to use questions to teach. Uh, This past week, I went back and I counted uh, all of them. Verse 33 is the 41st question that Jesus has asked so far in the gospel of Mark. So 41 times, he's already asked a question in which he's trying to teach somebody something. Kind of like when he said, how can Satan drive out Satan? Why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? Who touched my clothes? How many loaves do you have? Why does this generation demand a sign? Do you have hardened hearts? Who do people say that I am? Who do you say that I am? For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his own soul? It's amazing how questions can be the means through which you can teach and lead people where you want them to go. Now, Jesus, he knew what they were talking about. He he knew what his disciples were talking about. And so he asked them the question anyways. Here, verse 33, he's addressing the selfishness deep inside their hearts. But instead of saying, y'all are acting like a bunch of selfish babies. He doesn't do that. No, 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 no. He asks one simple question. What were you arguing about on the way? Silence. They were convicted embarrassed, ashamed. They were arguing over who was the greatest. Kind of like a bunch of little boys at a playground who were arguing over who's the fastest, whose dad is the strongest, arguing over something silly and trivial. And here they are elbowing for a position saying, well, I'm, I'm the greatest. Now, we like to argue about things like that. We like to argue over like, Who's the greatest singer of all time and why is it Whitney Houston? Okay. Okay. Rick Swing and I, we have debate regularly in which we ask who's the greatest basketball player of all time and he wrongly says Michael Jordan and I rightly say LeBron James. We have these debates over who is the greatest. Well, here are the disciples arguing They're debating over who is the greatest. Here's what probably took place. Peter, James, and John said... Who got to go up that mountain with Jesus? Any of you nine? I I didn't see any of you guys up there. We got to go. Y'all didn't go. Hey, when Jairus' daughter was dead, who got to go in with Jesus and see him raise a little girl from the dead? Were Were you guys there? Or maybe Judas Iscariot was holding up the purse saying, hey guys, who did Jesus trust with the money bag? Any of you? Nope. It's just me. Okay. So I guess I'm the greatest arguing, going back and forth. Jesus here is drawing out what's going on in the hearts of the disciples. And he sits down, verse 35, and like a rabbi who's teaching his disciples, he calls a team huddle. He's fully aware of their immaturity and he utilizes this as an opportunity to teach his disciples about humility. It's time for you guys to understand what greatness truly looks like. He tells them, verse 35, if anyone wants to be first, he must be last and servant of all. Record scratch. 
what? Is this opposite world? What are you, what are you talking about? The first got to be last? Jesus, that doesn't make any sense. Well, in the kingdom of God, it makes complete sense. For in the kingdom, the exact opposite of how the world works is how we are to function. In the kingdom of God, the way up is down. The way to be strong, you've got to be weak. Instead of believers racing to the top and scratching and clawing and elbowing for position to be number one, it's a race to the bottom. We are as a collective group, laboring, seeing who can go outdo one another in showing honor. Who can outdo one another in humility. Who can outdo one another in serving one another. You see, in the kingdom of God, we're not seeking to make, our, or make a name for ourselves. We're not out to build a brand. We're here to say, listen, I'm here to put everyone else before myself. I'm here to serve, not be served. I'm here to walk in humility in the same way that Jesus walked and modeled humility. And so I'm not seeking out rank or position or prominence. You see, in the kingdom, there is no upper class. In the kingdom of God, there is no caste system. When Jesus teaches leadership, he does not pull out an org chart and point to himself at the top. No, he pulls out a towel and a bowl, a bowl of water and he washes feet. You want to know what leadership looks like? Jesus says, you outdo one another in serving everyone. And when everyone says, it's not about me, it's about Jesus and putting others before me, he says, that is what the kingdom looks like. He says here, you've got to be, verse 35, servant of all. So Jesus does something very peculiar here. To illustrate this, he brings out a child, probably a toddler, and he has him stand right in the middle of the huddle. Now, in Western cultures like ours, we, we love babies. We love toddlers. They're considered adorable. But in the ancient world, infant mortality was high. Oftentimes, people would have lots and lots and lots of kids because they didn't know who was going to survive and who was going to make it. And here, we see a child probably before the age of five, not considered significant in the eyes of those who are gathered around them. He takes this small child in his arms. And he says, whoever receives me, whoever receives this child is like receiving me. You see, what the world sees as a nobody, Jesus sees as a somebody. The people whom the world casts out and says they're not important, Jesus says, no, 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 that's exactly who I want. So in our world right now, where children are being murdered in their mother's bellies and our world is saying, ah, oh, that's just medical waste, Jesus says, no, 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 they belong to me. As senior adults are being left alone and uncared for, Jesus is saying, no, 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 these people belong to me. Well, in this culture, young children were not important. People would not give them great affection because they weren't sure if they were going to make it to the age of five it's so they didn't give him a lot of significant weight. And Jesus says, come here, little fella. Get in here. Hey, guys, you want to know what greatness looks like? You've got to receive me just like this little child. 
Understand the significance of this moment. He's saying greatness is not about elbowing your way to be first on the org chart. It's about humbling yourself to become like a child. Someone who's needy, dependent. They don't have a resume. There's no significance in and of themselves, and they know that. There's a simple understanding of life. They understand that I don't have a whole lot to offer. There's no money. There's no worldly greatness. There's no influence. Jesus says whoever humbles himself like this child, that is who the Father will receive. And here is this child standing amidst the 12. And Jesus is using this child as an object lesson saying, humility looks like this. If you want to be great in the kingdom, you have to humble yourself like a child. One who is dependent, one with no resources, one who's not pulling their weight around the house, someone with no achievements, no accomplishments in the kingdom, you must see yourself like that. Because to come into the kingdom, you must see that before God, you have no resume. Before God, you and I are helpless and we are simple. We can't pull out our org chart and say, God, look how important I am. He's not interested in that. He says, if you want to be great in the kingdom, see yourself humble like a little child. You got to get low and understand that greatness in the kingdom is not about big and prominent. It's about humbling yourself. And that's the impact point I want you to walk out of here with today. And it's this, humble yourself like a child and believe the gospel. We've got to become like children. Childlike faith, childlike dependence, that we are vulnerable and helpless and still in desperate need of Jesus. When I think back to that conversation I had with my college professor, there he was with all of the bookshelves filled with books, all of his diplomas hanging on the wall, lots of money and status and influence unwilling to humble himself. And here is this child. No money, no education, nothing to boast in, just simple, humble, and eager to receive Jesus. Which one do you see yourself like? Do you look at your financial income with swagger? Do you look at your education as someone who's important? Do you know your role on your company's org chart and stick your chest out? Or are you willing to humble yourself like a child and say, I'm helpless, I'm dependent. Before God, I've got nothing in my hands. So Jesus, I come before you and I say, I believe. I wanna be great in your kingdom by becoming less. I want to race to the bottom. I want to serve others before myself in the same way that you, Jesus, served us all the way to the cross where you gave your life at Calvary and you humbled yourself to the point of death, even death on a cross, and God has highly exalted you to be the name above all names. So now, Lord, I humble myself and I trust you and I give my life completely to you.